Jesus. I'm impressed by Jesus. And praise God for that. That, um, that was the, the sermon from last week. And if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because in chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, the author really lays it on thick about how absolutely impressive Jesus truly is. And he does that throughout the entire book of Hebrews. But he really comes out of the gate strong and, and gives reason to be impressed by Jesus. And then this morning... This sermon is from uh, chapter 2, the next few verses there, verses 1 through 4, and it's a word for wanderers, those that aren't quite convinced yet. And I've borrowed the title, Prone to Wander, from that hymn we all know, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's what these people in the book of Hebrews were sort of flirting with. So what the author makes clear in these verses is that they... We need to pay attention to the message, verse 1. We need to know that that message is reliable, verses 2 and 4. And we need to be warned that receiving that message has consequences, verses 2 and 3. So let's go now to God's Word in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the words of the one true and living God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, Your word is amazing. These verses are amazing. So let us be amazed this morning. Work in our hearts and in our minds this morning as I preach, Father, so that Your word takes root in the lives of Your people and bears fruit for your glory, and for the good of your kingdom. Be with me now, Holy Spirit, and do what I am powerless to do. Make your word come alive. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 1 begins, therefore, and it's always a good idea to to see what the therefore is there for. And uh, well, we've seen up to this point, haven't we, that Jesus is superior to the prophets. He's superior even to the angels. And now, in light of all that, what we must do. In other words, if that's true, if Jesus is, uh, as as the author uh, author covered in chapter 1, if he is the superior revelation of God, If he is the heir of all things, the creator and the sustainer of all things, the redeemer and the supreme ruler of heaven and earth, who has a better name than angels, who himself made the angels and rules over them and is worshipped by them, then we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Verse 1. This is, as we'll see, uh, the first of six warnings that roll out in the book of Hebrews. He's letting them know, don't turn back. Don't turn your back on this Jesus. 
Instead, instead of ignoring this teaching that you've received, instead of ignoring Jesus and losing interest in the message and getting bored with the gospel and coming to church, we must pay much closer attention lest we drift away from it. Drift away from what? Drift away from what? The only hope that fallen human beings have. The only escape from God's just wrath and punishment due for sin. Peace and reconciliation with God and the redemption of all things through the blood of Christ His Son. The gospel and all that is included in it, that's what they're in danger of drifting away from. Why would anybody do that? It's a lot easier than you would think. Can you think of anybody in, in your own life that you've known that seemed really solid, right? Solid Christians seem like they're following the Lord and then they just sort of fizzle out. Something happens and they just go away and they never come back and just abandon the faith altogether. I think a lot of us have seen that, haven't we? And it hurts, and it's really sad, but that happens. We must pay much closer attention because we're all prone to wander. It says there, lest we drift away from it. Drifting is our default setting. You guys realize that, don't you? Have you ever, have you ever restored a phone or a computer, some kind of device to its default settings, to its factory settings? That's our factory setting as fallen human beings, drifting away from God. That's who we are. And what's scary is we don't even realize it's happening. You don't have to push a button, right? You, you, don't, have to, you don't have to schedule an appointment. You don't have to put it on your calendar to begin drifting away from God. It just sort of happens. How? How does someone drift away from God? Just do nothing. It takes zero effort. It is the easiest thing you will ever do in your life. Have you ever been swimming in the ocean? Some of y'all won't get this. Some of y'all are too afraid to, to swim in the ocean. I get that. You're weird and you say, no, that's, man, that's the shark's home and I'm not invited. But for those of you who are not uh, deprived of the enjoyment of swimming in the ocean, by your fear, have you ever swum out a ways and then turned back and looked that you weren't just farther out, you are farther down the beach than where you started? I mean, you didn't mean to, you didn't turn, it just sort of happened, just ended up way out there. You are farther away from, from where you were. Drifting takes no intentionality at all. You can think you're going the direction you're supposed to be going and find out He'd been drifting. It happens. It's automatic in our lives. And it happens in our lives uh, simply by neglect. There can, there, there can be some catalysts to drift. You know, there can be things that happen. There can be trials and tribulations that come that can cause bitterness and, and cause us to doubt. That can serve as a catalyst for drift. But a big one for most of us these days is just plain old busyness just being so busy. Aren't there a lot of things that are always occupying our minds and compete with our time and our attention? 
So many things that seem to want to happen all at once. Everything just wants to happen all at once. And we spend our days sort of putting out fires and playing whack-a-mole with circumstances that pop up. And whether we end up checking off every box that day or not, by the time we've decided we're done checking boxes for the day, what we want to do is nothing. Raise your hand if that's you. I'll go first. Isn't that easy to do? And then you, you don't get around to doing the things you know are important and that you should be doing to care for your soul because time seems to go by just so fast these days. You think, I know I should find more time to read my Bible. I know I should find more time to pray. I know I should find more time to be more intentional about reaching those around me with the gospel. I know, dads, I should find more time to lead my family spiritually and disciple my children so this next generation of believers in the church is stronger than the one at present. Here's the deal. You want the truth? You will never find the time. Nobody ever found the time to do those things. You have to make the time. You have to make the time. And here's what happens if you don't. Drift. So how do we keep from drifting away from God? We have to pay much closer attention to the message. Isn't that what it says there? Seems simple, and it is simple. It's just not easy. We have to pay attention to the message. And so that's the first point. Pay attention to the message. The message of hope, that message of forgiveness, that message of a, of a savior, that message of friendship with Jesus, who knows and sympathizes with all of our struggles, but who is also our divine warrior king who fights for us and wins. That message of the gospel and how great Jesus is, is powerful. Not just once, not just when you get saved, but to carry you all the way to completion in this life and in the next. That's why we have to have a bigger view of the message of the gospel. We need to pay attention to the whole thing because if we don't, we'll miss out on how wonderful of a promise it actually is. And we won't see it, how it really makes a difference in our life now. So, People, people get bored with Jesus and the message of the gospel because they think it only has to do with their future but nothing to do with their present. When people think the only real significance of the gospel is getting to heaven one day, once they got that ticket punched, they check out. They stop reading their Bibles, they stop coming to church, they stop making Jesus and what he's doing in the world the focal point of how they live their lives, of how they make decisions, of where they choose to live, who they choose to marry, and how they raise their families. And what happens as a result of being underwhelmed with Jesus and all of his benefits, what happens when you start getting bored with the gospel is drift. Your defenses get weak. 
Anybody experienced that before? Your defenses get weak, and you gradually begin excusing sins in your life you fought hard against when you were paying much closer attention to the message. We have to pay much closer attention to the message we have heard. Now, I'll just ask you, are you struggling with sin now? Like something in particular, something that comes to mind when you hear that? Unrepentant sin is another instigator, another catalyst that can draw you away from God. And you can find out you're a lot farther down the beach than you thought you were from where you started from. Hanging on to pet sins, hiding from God. What's the solution? What if that's you, right? What, what do you do? What's the solution? Well, it's not continuing to hide from God. Remember when Adam sinned in the garden, he hid. You remember that? He hid, and God didn't say, what did you do? He said, where are you? Not because God didn't know where Adam was, but because Adam needed to know where Adam was. He was far from God. So if that's you this morning, let me encourage you. God knows exactly where you are, and he loves you enough to not ignore you. He calls to you, where are you? Where are you? Don't keep hiding. That's not the solution. Remember the gospel and what that means for you today. Remember the gospel, y'all, and what that means for you today. It means you don't have to hide from God anymore. You can go to him and be renewed and restored. Pay attention to the message. Being filled with the mind of Christ prevents that distance. Uh, being preoccupied with Jesus prevents that distance, and it restores you when that distance has been created. That's why we say, read your Bible every day. Yeah? Scripture doesn't say that. There's no commandment that says, you know, read your Bible every day. For most of human history, people didn't have a Bible to read. So how can we say if you're a Christian, you should read your Bible every day? Well, I think when we look at various passages all throughout Scripture about meditating on God's law and, and teaching them to our children day and night, when we rise up, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, storing up His commandments in our hearts, being transformed by the renewal of our minds, we have a way to do all that, don't we? Aren't we a privileged people? Aren't we a privileged people that have more now because of the gospel going forth in the world? Don't we have some advantages now that believers didn't have centuries ago that give us all the more reason to feed on the word of God daily? We have the completion of God's word that we can just pick up and open whenever we want and read the words of God. I mean, aren't we spoiled? You know, I, 
I don't have just one Bible. I don't know about y'all. I have lots of Bibles. I have three that I use all the time. I, I have one I take with me for, for counseling, for preaching at the, at the abortion mill. Uh, I have one that I used in seminary that ha- has lots of helpful notes in it that I might use for sermon prep or for family devotions. And then I have this one that I use more generally. This is my nice Bible, right? This is like my, my Mercedes Bible. And, you know, so I use this one for reading, for preaching, and I hope to be able to pass it down to my children one day. We have the Word of God, and so we should read it. Why? Because we have it. Because we have it. We should read it every day because we recognize what a gift and privilege it is. And in doing that, we draw closer to Him, and He draws near to us. We are increasingly more transformed by the renewal of our minds, and as a result of that, it keeps us from sin. You know, um, I, in my son's Bibles, I read a little inscription that says, this book will either keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from it. I think it was John Bunyan that first said that. But that's true. The more we read it, the more we are filled with the mind of Christ, impressed by Him and His wisdom and his awe, and his majesty, the less likely we are to gratify the desires of the flesh. We still sin, but the more often we are encountering God and his word, the less prone we find ourselves to wander into temptation. The, the, the less prone we are to wander, the less likely we are to drift, because we're paying attention to the message. I'll say something here for a minute about men desiring boldness and courage. It seems I have had a lot of conversations with people in recent months and even years where we see this phenomenon where we see a lack of men willing to be men in our society. Don't we? Haven't we seen that? Men who want to be men until it's time to do men things. Even Christian men, maybe even especially Christian men. Instead of being what God intended them to be by nature and what he redeemed them to be by the cross, which is fearless, they create surrogates. programs and methods and strategies to hide behind so they don't have to get messy or do anything really dangerous. E.M. Bounds once said, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. So what do you say, men? How do we regain that sort of bold and godly manliness in the church today? How can a man who knows he lacks courage find some? Here's how. A clean heart comes before courage. You want to know you're actually capable of leading others and making decisions without feeling like an imposter? That's a thing. That's a thing people talk about now as men feel like I- I- imposters. They call it imposter syndrome. You know, because it's got to sound medical so it doesn't sound like sin. It has to sound like something we can catch rather than something that's in us. 
But what's actually underneath that lack of confident leadership is a lack of a clean heart. You want to know you're deserving of the blessings that you have? And receive them with with gratitude and thanks rather than feeling guilty for having them? Afraid of them being taken away? You want to know the reward of risk and experience the hand of God delivering you from danger? It's going to take courage and a clean heart comes before courage. And that doesn't mean living a sinless life. You'll still sin, but it does mean not letting sin master you. It means not resting your head at night without having done business with the Lord and confessing what needed to be confessed, asking God to search every dark corner of your mind and your heart so that you can be the humble warrior that he's called you to be, that he's redeemed you to be. You're going to need a clean heart before God to have courage before men. And if you know a man who needs to hear that, you need to tell him. And if you lack the courage, you can just share the sermon with them. We have a shortage of courageous Christian men because we have a shortage of Christian men with clean hearts before God. They know they aren't doing or being what God requires and they feel guilty for it. And so they hide from God and they hide from men. Pay attention to the message Men. Christ saved us while we were yet sinners. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten you had to go to him with all your filth and be cleaned up the first time? Have you forgotten you were so vile to begin with that a perfect man had to die in your place in order for you to be forgiven? You didn't have to clean yourself up before you came to him. You had to come to him first and be cleaned up. Nothing has changed. It's the same now. You go to him still as vile as you are, and he will clean you up feel guilt, shame, all that stuff, you can't remove the shame. You're not going to work your way out of feeling dirty and, and shameful and then you'll go and do your business with God. It doesn't work that way. Only he can do it. You take your shame to the cross. You confess it. You repent of it. You get it out there. You don't remove that burden of guilt off of you. You can't. You can't remove it. You go to him to have it removed. And I, I, It's humiliating. It's humiliating. I know there's simply no other way. There's no other way that happens in the life of a Christian. You go to him with that humility, with all your guilt and shame, and he will lift your face toward heaven. So instead of you hanging your head and wallowing in your guilt and looking down, he'll cause you to look up, to see him and to pursue him with confidence Remember, Jesus not only delivers you from eternal judgment for your sin, he delivers you from the power of sin in your life today. We are to overcome sin by the power of the Spirit in us as new creations in Christ Jesus. And that posture of humility, y'all, 
coming before God that way with that desire to be clean, he will honor it. And it results in a courage that fears no man, not even death. Christians in history have had that kind of courage. Courage is especially a manly virtue, but it's not only a manly virtue. (laughs) You realize that? It's especially a manly virtue. The world doesn't want to hear that today. Don't care. It's especially a manly virtue. Men should be courageous. But it's not only a manly virtue, it is a Christian virtue. So ladies, let me have you tune back in for just a minute. And guys, stick with me. There was a martyr, a female martyr, in the early 3rd century. You may have heard of her before, read about her. Her name was Perpetua. Okay? She suffered with dignity before a crowd cheering on her death. She was thrown naked into an arena to be attacked by a wild bull. She was trampled by the bull, stood up, and you'd think she would run off, right? Like she'd be desperately climbing over the, the, the wall to try to get to the crowd saying, help me. Nope, she stood up and fixed her hair. She must have been Southern. But when the bull couldn't finish her off, a gladiator was called to do it. His hand was shaking. And she guided his shaking hands to the tip of the sword was at her throat. So what that man lacked in courage, that Christian woman, that Christian woman had. The reason I tell you that story is because this is important to understand. No fear of death is a powerful witness. Fearlessness, y'all, frightens evil. It puts Christ's enemies on their heels. Because that's what Satan in the kingdom of darkness wants, is for you to fear it rather than stand up to it. And that's the kind of courage Christians can have. The kind that can laugh in the face of evil. And you don't get that kind of courage by carrying around unconfessed and unrepentant sin. You get it from having a clean heart before the Lord God Almighty. Staying continually in his presence with great humility before him so that we don't flinch when we stand before evil men. We stay the course. We keep coming to God to feel our desperate need of him. And there, we're convinced of our right standing with the maker of the heavens and the earth. What can man do to me? See how that works? We must pay closer attention to the message lest we drift. Next point, the message is reliable. And it's important to know if we're going to die for it, right? It better be reliable. The author assures us here that it is. And how can we be so sure? Read the rest of verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord. The Lord himself gave it to us. He has spoken to us by his Son. This message is is not unclear, it's not foggy, it's not incomplete. It is unmistakable. It is reliable. Verse 3 continues, it was attested to us by those who heard. So the the Lord said it himself, uh, we've received credible report by those who saw Jesus. And the verse continues, God bore witness to it by miracles. So by signs and wonders and special gifting given by the Holy Spirit to give his stamp and seal of approval on the legitimacy of this message of his son. 
You talk about these special gifts, these special gifts of the Spirit that were given in the early church to, to authenticate the claims the apostles were making. When we think of those gifts today, speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, prophecy, those gifts have ceased now. And that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's not still at work. It just means that those were particular gifts given to a particular people at a particular point in time for a very particular purpose. And that purpose was to jumpstart the church. Those gifts were to establish the authenticity of the church and the apostolic teaching. They're not, a, they're not for establishing the authenticity of the church today. It has already been authenticated. And if we want to hear from God, we hear from His Word. And here's the thing, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, there's nothing vague or incomplete about the revelation of God. Not anymore. He has spoken to us by His Son, and we have to pay attention. We have to be careful not to drift away from that message. We have to be careful to stay on the path. So how do we do that? How do we stay on the path? Well, one thing is what we said already, stay in the Word. Stay in the Word. You want to stay connected to Jesus and not drift? Stay in His Word. Read the Bible. Come to church. Be where Jesus says He shows up, right? He, he's everywhere. He is always present. He is omnipresent, but in a unique way when His people are gathered to worship Him on the day that He has set aside for His worship. Another way is to serve in his church. You want to know that you're tethered to Christ? Are you tethered to his church? To a local body, to his local outpost? Right? And not begrudgingly, not because no one else would do it and a lot fell on you, but seeing the gift and blessing it is to, to be involved in that way in serving the church. We stay on the path and keep from drifting by paying attention to the message, knowing it is reliable. And again, just a quick summary. We know it's reliable because the angels said so, Jesus said so, eyewitnesses said so, and we got miracles to prove it as if all of that wasn't enough. But we keep on the path, we keep from drifting by paying attention to the message, knowing it's reliable. And here's the deal. If we, if we have paid attention and we do know it's reliable, Shouldn't that affect the way we behave? Does that make a difference in our lives? Don't we have all the more reason to behave in a way that testifies to our belief in this message? That we have not forgotten, that we have not set aside, and that we know is reliable? That it's not just myth? It's not just a theory? It's not just a, a cool subject to study? It is our lifeline. Now, here's what the author wants us in the next. So this is our next point. Receiving the message has consequences. The warning isn't just that drift is possible. The warning is that we will be held accountable for our sin. Verse 2. Receiving the message has consequences. God is just, and he holds people accountable for their sin. If he didn't, he would not be just. He holds people accountable for their sin. You know, God is more holy and just than we might think He is. And He says, I have sent you my Son to die in the place of sinners, to rise again from the grave to conquer death, and I will hold you accountable for how you respond to that message. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just 
retribution. That's what it says there in verse 2. Didn't God hold people accountable for their sin in the Old Testament? Wasn't Israel judged for their idolatry right after God delivered them out of Egypt? Didn't they wander for 40 years on an 11-day journey? Weren't they allowed to be plundered by their enemies and then exiled for their continued disobedience to God? Now, here's the mistake many Christians believe that I hope none of us here this morning believe is, is that the new covenant being a better covenant means we have a different God than the old covenant. A God with a different view or a different response to sin and disobedience. People say, well, you know, that was the God of the Old Testament. As opposed to what? Do we have a different God in the New Testament? Do we have a God with a different will or view of sin in the New Testament? They say, well, no, we're New Covenant believers, right? And that's true, and there are a lot of differences, but pay attention to what the author says in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we look at how God views sin and disobedience in the Old Testament... How much more awful will God's judgment be if we reject Jesus? If God would judge people for rejecting a message that wasn't entirely clear, how will he judge those who have gotten the clearest message about who God is and what he's done and what he expects from those made in his image? We're held accountable more so than those in the Old Testament, in light of the complete revelation of God in Christ. In fact, it was Jesus that brought that judgment in the Old Testament, when you see all that happening. Like, don't rule Jesus out. It's not like, you know, he, he wasn't around until he was born. We've gone over a lot of that recently, haven't we? It was Jesus that brought that judgment in the Old Testament, where you read about that sort of stuff, that same Jesus. So that same one who brought that judgment is the same one who came and gave himself. He gave himself. He offered himself as the solution for our sin and disobedience. So the message is, there is escape, but it's only through the Son who is provided as our way of escape. There is no other escape if we neglect the way of salvation provided for us. If we accept Jesus, we can escape God's judgment. If we don't, there's no way of escape. Jesus has made a way, and if you embrace him, you don't receive the judgment you deserve. You, you, you receive mercy and forgiveness and peace. So the book of Hebrews has some really thick theology in it at points, and I think I mentioned this last week that when we come across something like that uh, where, where a question might come up, I want to anticipate that and let us look at that for a minute. Last week, uh, we, we came to something, the question of Jesus being begotten. If you are here last week, we talked about that. If you missed that, you can go back and listen. But this week, the question that might come up is this. Is this true? Is it true that someone can lose their faith and their salvation? Is that what this is saying? Is, is that what we take away from this, that we're all in danger of having the rug pulled out from under us? If we, don't, if we don't keep it up, if we don't behave, we will lose salvation? No. No. And don't, don't walk away here with that, okay? A true believer cannot be lost. A true blood-bought believer 
can drift. That's why we have these warnings. But the Holy Spirit has a claim on him and will bring him back. And that's why this warning, okay? That's why we get these kinds of warnings. The warning is a part of the means of bringing us back. Gospel warnings are graciously given in order to reconcile those who are wandering. That's why we have church discipline, by the way. That's what church discipline does. It's about being reconciled. This, this, the kind of ministry we have, this ministry that we've been giving, it is a ministry of reconciliation. That's part of this message we're supposed to pay attention to and not drift away from. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Christ reconciled us to himself. Count the number of times of reconcile. It'll be fun. Make a little tally. Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message. That's the message. It's a message of reconciliation. And receiving that message has consequences, we learn in these verses in Hebrews. In fact, Paul confirms that too, right after those verses we just read in 2 Corinthians. He goes on, he continues, he says, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Y'all, this is something we, we remind the workers at the abortion mill of every week we stand out there. Because they go on hearing and not believing. They reject Jesus and the message of the gospel. They hear the free offer of God's grace for sinners. They receive it. It's been given to them loud and clear, but they reject it. There are consequences for that. More severe consequences than for those who have not heard. Pray for those people, y'all. God can save them. Gospel warnings like this are important. They point to two realities. Gospel warnings in the Bible, we'll see some of them in Hebrews, they point to two important realities. The first is that the gospel is a command to be obeyed. It is not a suggestion, it is a command. Repent and believe. If you don't, there is no escape, and the judgment for refusing the way of escape is more severe. And the second, these gospel warnings point to an important reality that there are true believers and false ones. There's such a thing. False ones will eventually walk away altogether. That's what we call apostasy. They're the ones the warnings didn't work on. What the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that happens too. It happens in the church among those who profess to know Christ to warn us that that happens. Not to warn us that we're in danger of losing our salvation, but to warn us it's possible you never had it. If you're drifting, be warned. Come back. 
Come back into the fold and be reconciled. If you don't heed the warning, if you don't come back, be warned. You are never truly one of Christ's sheep and the wrath of God abides on you. Do not neglect such a great salvation. So the author says, don't let that be you. Don't, don't, don't go down that path. Stay the course. Cling to Jesus. And if you're feeling far off, get closer. Move closer. Listen to the warning. Pay attention to the message. Know it is reliable, but also know that receiving it has consequences. I'll close with this. If the warnings frighten you, good That's good evidence that the Spirit of God is in you, that the Son of God has redeemed you, and that through those warnings you are being reconciled to Him. There's, that's a good thing. There's growth, there's humility, there's increased faith and a greater measure of, of assurance and confidence and standing before your God that comes to, to, to responding that way, comes with that. You know, it's only those that harden their hearts to these warnings that have reason to worry. It's those who, who wave off the warnings, that scoff at these things, that think it's not talking about them. Those are the ones who need to worry. So if the warnings scare you, good. Work it out. Take it to the Lord in prayer. For those that are hard to the warnings, the message is the same. It's the same message. It's the same message. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, His Son. Repent and believe the gospel because there is no better news and there is no other Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your Word. I pray that You would use the message this morning to move us closer to You and to it that we would indeed pay much closer attention to the message we have received and that by your Spirit you would save the lost and strengthen the found for your glory and for the good of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.